Welcome to Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 3, Chapter 2, Section 1. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. Chapter 2 of Faith, the definition of it, its peculiar properties. There are 43 sections. Section 1. All these things will be easily understood after we have given a clear definition of faith, so as to enable the readers to apprehend its nature and power. Here it is of importance to call to mind what was formerly taught, first, that since God by his law prescribes what we ought to do, failure in any one respect subjects us to the dreadful judgment of eternal death, which it denounces. Secondly, because it is not only difficult, but altogether beyond our strength and ability to fulfill the demands of the law, if we look only to ourselves and consider what is due to our merits, no ground of hope remains, but we lie forsaken of God under eternal death. Thirdly, that there is only one method of deliverance which can rescue us from this miserable calamity, viz., when Christ the Redeemer appears, by whose hand our Heavenly Father, out of His infinite goodness and mercy, has been pleased to succor us, if we with true faith embrace this mercy, and with firm hope rest in it. It is now proper to consider the nature of this faith, by means of which those who are adopted into the family of God obtain possession of the heavenly kingdom. For the accomplishment of so great an end, it is obvious that no mere opinion or persuasion is adequate, and the greater care and diligence is necessary in discussing the true nature of faith from the pernicious delusions which many in the present day labor under with regard to it. Great numbers on hearing the term think that nothing more is meant than a certain common assent to the gospel history. Nay, when the subject of faith is discussed in the schools by simply representing God as its object, They, by empty speculation, as we have elsewhere said in Book 2, Chapter 6, Section 4, hurry wretched souls away from the right mark instead of directing them to it. For seeing that God dwells in light that is inaccessible, Christ must intervene. Hence he calls himself, quote, the light of the world, unquote, and in another passage, quote, the way, the truth, and the life, unquote. None cometh to the Father, who is the fountain of life, except by him. For, quote, no man knoweth who the Father is, but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him, unquote. For this reason, Paul declares, quote, I count all things as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, unquote. 
In the 20th chapter of the Acts, he states that he preached, quote, faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ, unquote. And in another passage, he introduces Christ as thus addressing him, quote, I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, unquote. Quote, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, unquote. Quote, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified through faith which is in me, unquote. Paul further declares that in the person of Christ the glory of God is visibly manifested to us, or, which is the same thing, we have, quote, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, unquote. 1 Timothy 6, 16, John 8, verse 12, and 14, verse 6, Luke 10, verse 22, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. Acts 20, verse 21, and 26, verses 17 and 18. And finally, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. It is true indeed that faith has respect to God only, but to this we should add that it acknowledges Jesus Christ, whom he hath sent. God would remain far off, concealed from us, were it not irradiated by the brightness of Christ. All that the Father had, he deposited with his only begotten Son, in order that he might manifest himself in him, and thus, by the communication of blessings, express the true image of his glory. Since, as has been said, we must be led by the Spirit, and thus stimulated to seek Christ, so must we also remember that the invisible Father is to be sought nowhere but in this image. For this reason, Augustine, treating of the object of faith, elegantly says, quote, the thing to be known is whether we are to go and by what way, unquote. and immediately after infers that, quote, the surest way to avoid all errors is to know him who is both God and man. It is to God we tend, and it is by man we go, and both of these are found only in Christ, unquote. Paul, when he preaches faith towards God, surely does not intend to overthrow what he so often inculcates, viz., that faith has all its stability in Christ. Peter, most appropriately, connects both, saying that by him, quote, we believe in God, unquote. 1 Peter 1, verse 21. Section 2. This evil, therefore, must, like innumerable others, be attributed to the schoolmen, who have in a manner drawn a veil over Christ to whom, if our eye is not directly turned, we must always wander through many labyrinths. But besides impairing and almost annihilating faith by their obscure definition, they have invented the fiction of implicit faith, with which name, decking the grossest ignorance, they delude the wretched populace to their great destruction. Nay, to state the fact more truly and plainly, this fiction not only buries true faith, but entirely destroys it. Is it faith to understand nothing, and merely submit your convictions implicitly to the church? Faith consists not in ignorance, but in knowledge, knowledge not of God merely, but of the divine will. We do not obtain salvation either because we are prepared to embrace every dictate of the church as true, or leave to the church the province of inquiring and determining. But when we recognize God as a propitious Father through the reconciliation made by Christ, and Christ is given to us for righteousness, sanctification, and life. By this knowledge, I say not by the submission of our understanding, we obtain an entrance into the kingdom of heaven. For when the apostle says, quote, With the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, unquote. Romans 10, verse 10. He intimates that it is not enough to believe implicitly without understanding or even inquiring. 
The thing requisite is an explicit recognition of the divine goodness in which our righteousness consists. Section 3. I indeed deny not, so enveloped are we in ignorance, that to us very many things now are and will continue to be completely involved until we lay aside this weight of flesh and approach near to the presence of God. In such cases the fittest course is to suspend our judgment and resolve to maintain unity with the church. But under this pretext, to honor ignorance tempered with humility with the name of faith is most absurd. Faith consists in the knowledge of God and of Christ. John 17, verse 3, not in reverence for the church. And we see what a labyrinth they have formed out of this implicit faith, everything, sometimes even the most monstrous errors, being received by the ignorant as oracles without any discrimination, provided they are prescribed to them under the name of the church. This inconsiderate facility, though the surest precipice to destruction, is, however, excused on the ground that it believes nothing definitely but only with the appended condition, if such is the faith of the church. Thus they pretend to find truth in error, light in darkness, true knowledge in ignorance. Not to dwell longer in refuting these views, we simply advise the reader to compare them with ours. The clearness of truth will itself furnish a sufficient refutation. For the question they raise is not whether there may be an implicit faith with many remains of ignorance, but they maintain that persons living and even indulging in a stupid ignorance duly believe, provided in regard to things unknown, they assent to the authority and judgment of the church, as if scripture did not uniformly teach that with faith understanding is conjoined. Section 4. We grant indeed that so long as we are pilgrims in the world, faith is implicit, not only because as yet many things are hidden from us, but because, involved in the mists of error, we attain not to all. The highest wisdom, even of him who has attained the greatest perfection, is to go forward and endeavor in a calm and teachable spirit to make further progress. Hence Paul exhorts believers to wait for further illumination in any manner in which they differ from each other. Philippians 3 verse 15 and certainly experience teaches that so long as we are in the flesh, our attainments are less than is to be desired. In our daily reading we fall in with many obscure passages which convict us of ignorance. With this curb God keeps us modest, assigning to each a measure of faith that every teacher, however excellent, may still be disposed to learn. Striking examples of this implicit faith may be observed in the disciples of Christ before they were fully illuminated. We see with what difficulty they take in the first rudiments, how they hesitate in the minutest matters, how, though hanging on the lips of their master, they make no great progress. Nay, even after running to the sepulchre on the report of the women, the resurrection of their master appears to them a dream. As Christ previously bore testimony to their faith, we cannot say that they were altogether devoid of it. Nay, had they not been persuaded that Christ would rise again, all their zeal would have been extinguished. Nor was it superstition that led the women to prepare spices to embalm a dead body, of whose revival they had no expectation. But although they gave credit to the words of one whom they knew to be true, yet the ignorance which still possessed their minds involved their faith in darkness, and left them in amazement. Hence they are said to have believed only when, by the reality, they perceived the truth of what Christ had spoken. Not that they then began to believe, but the seed of a hidden faith, which lay as it were dead in their hearts, then burst forth in vigor. They had, therefore, a true but implicit faith, having reverently embraced Christ as the only teacher. Then, being taught by him, they felt assured that he was the author of salvation. 
in fine, believed that he had come from heaven to gather disciples, and take them thither through the grace of the Father. There cannot be a more familiar proof of this than that in all men faith is always mingled with incredulity. Section 5. We may also call their faith implicit, as being properly nothing else than a preparation for faith. The evangelists describe many as having believed, although they were only roused to admiration by the miracles, and went no farther than to believe that Christ was the promised Messiah without being at all imbued with evangelical doctrine. The reverence which subdued them and made them willingly submit to Christ is honored with the name of faith, though it was nothing but the commencement of it. Thus the nobleman who believed in the promised cure of his son on returning home is said by the evangelist in John 4, verse 53, to have again believed. That is, he had first received the words which fell from the lips of Christ as an oracular response and thereafter submitted to his authority and received his doctrine. Although it is to be observed that he was docile and disposed to learn, yet the word, quote, believed, unquote, in the former passage denotes a particular faith, and in the latter gives him a place among those disciples who had devoted themselves to Christ. Not unlike this is the example which John gives of the Samaritans who believed the woman and eagerly hastened to Christ. But after they had heard him, thus expressed themselves, quote, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world, unquote. John 4, verse 42. From these passages, it is obvious that even those who are not yet imbued with the first principles, provided they are disposed to obey, are called believers, not properly indeed, but inasmuch as God is pleased in kindness so highly to honor their pious feeling. But this docility with a desire of further progress is widely different from the gross ignorance in which those sluggishly indulge who are contented with the implicit faith of the papists. If Paul severely condemns those who are, quote, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, unquote, how much more sharply ought those to be rebuked who avowedly affect to know nothing? Section 6. The true knowledge of Christ consists in receiving him as he is offered by the Father, namely, as invested with the gospel. For as he is appointed as the end of our faith, so we cannot directly tend towards him except under the guidance of the gospel. Therein are certainly unfolded to us treasures of grace. Did these continue shut, Christ would profit us little. Hence Paul makes faith the inseparable attendant of doctrine in these words, quote, Ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Unquote. Ephesians 4, verses 20 and 21. Still, I do not confine faith to the gospel in such a sense as not to admit that enough was delivered to Moses and the prophets to form a foundation of faith. But as the gospel exhibits a fuller manifestation of Christ, Paul justly terms it the doctrine of faith. 1 Timothy 4, verse 6. For which reason also he elsewhere says that by the coming of faith the law was abolished. Romans 10, verse 4. Including under the expression a new and unwanted mode of teaching by which Christ, from the period of his appearance as the great master, gave a fuller illustration of the Father's mercy and testified more surely of our salvation. But an easier and more appropriate method will be to descend from the general to the particular. First, we must remember that there is an inseparable relation between faith and the word, and that these can no more be disconnected from each other than rays of light from the sun. Hence, in Isaiah, the Lord explains, quote, Hear, and your soul shall live, unquote. Isaiah 55, 3. 
And John points to this same fountain of faith in the following words, quote, These are written that ye might believe, unquote, John 20, verse 31. The psalmist also, exhorting the people to faith, says, quote, Today, if ye will hear his voice, unquote, in Psalm 95, verse 7, to hear being uniformly taken for to believe. In fine, in Isaiah, the Lord distinguishes the members of the church from strangers by this mark, quote, All thy children shall be taught of the Lord, unquote. Isaiah 54, verse 13. For if the benefit was indiscriminate, why should he address his words only to a few? Corresponding with this, the evangelists uniformly employ the terms believers and disciples as synonymous. This is done especially by Luke in several passages of the Acts. He even applies the term disciple to a woman in Acts 9, verse 36. Wherefore, if faith declines in the least degree from the mark at which it ought to aim, it does not retain its nature, but becomes uncertain credulity and vague wandering of mind. The same word is the basis on which it rests and is sustained. Declining from it, it falls. Take away the word, therefore, and no faith will remain. We are not here discussing whether, in order to propagate the word of God by which faith is engendered, the ministry of man is necessary. This will be considered elsewhere. But we say that the word itself, whatever be the way in which it is conveyed to us, is a kind of mirror in which faith beholds God. And this, therefore, whether God uses the agency of man or works immediately by his own power, it is always by his word that he manifests himself to those whom he designs to draw to himself. Hence Paul designates faith as the obedience which is given to the gospel, Romans 1, verse 5. And writing to the Philippians, he commends them for the obedience of faith, Philippians 2, verse 17. For faith includes not merely the knowledge that God is, but also, nay chiefly, a perception of his will towards us. It concerns us to know not only what he is in himself, but also in what character he is pleased to manifest himself to us. We now see, therefore, that faith is the knowledge of the divine will in regard to us, as ascertained from his word. And the foundation of it is a previous persuasion of the truth of God. So long as your mind entertains any misgivings as to the certainty of the word, its authority will be weak and dubious, or rather it will have no authority at all. Nor is it sufficient to believe that God is true and cannot lie or deceive unless you feel firmly persuaded that every word which proceeds from him is sacred, inviolable truth. Section 7 But since the heart of man is not brought to faith by every word of God, we must still consider what it is that faith properly has respect to in the word. The declaration of God to Adam was, quote, Thou shalt surely die, unquote, Genesis 2, verse 17. And to Cain, quote, The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground, unquote, Genesis 4, verse 10. But these, so far from being fitted to establish faith, tend only to shake it. At the same time, we deny not that it is the office of faith to assent to the truth of God whenever, whatever, and in whatever way he speaks. We are only inquiring what faith can find in the word of God to lean and rest upon. When conscience sees only wrath and indignation, how can it but tremble and be afraid, and how can it avoid shunning the God whom it thus dreads? But faith ought to seek God, not shun him. It is evident, therefore, that we have not yet obtained a full definition of faith, it being impossible to give the name to every kind of knowledge of the divine will. Shall we then, for will, which is often the messenger of bad news and the herald of terror, substitute the benevolence or mercy of God? In this way, doubtless, we make a nearer approach to the nature of faith. 
for we are allured to seek God when told that our safety is treasured up in him, and we are confirmed in this when he declares that he studies and takes an interest in our welfare. Hence there is need of the gracious promise in which he testifies that he is a propitious father. Since there is no other way in which we can approach to him, the promise being the only thing on which the heart of man can recline. For this reason the two things, mercy and truth, are uniformly conjoined in the Psalms as having a mutual connection with each other. For it were of no avail to us to know that God is true, did he not in mercy allure us to himself. Nor could we of ourselves embrace his mercy, did not he expressly offer it. Quote, I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth. Withhold not thy tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let thy loving kindness and thy truth continually preserve me. Unquote. Psalm 40, verses 10 and 11. Quote, thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness reacheth unto the clouds. Unquote. Psalm 36, verse 5. Quote, All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Unquote. Psalm 25, verse 10. Quote, his merciful kindness is great towards us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Unquote. Psalm 117, verse 2. Quote, I will praise thy name for thy loving kindness and thy truth. Unquote. Psalm 138, verse 2. I need not quote what is said in the prophets to the effect that God is merciful and faithful in his promises. If we're presumptuous in us to hold that God is propitious to us, had we not his own testimony? And did he not prevent us by his invitation which leaves no doubt or uncertainty as to his will? It has already been seen that Christ is the only pledge of love, for without him all things, both above and below, speak of hatred and wrath. We have also seen that since the knowledge of the divine goodness cannot be of much importance unless it leads us to confide in it, we must exclude a knowledge mingled with doubt, a knowledge which, so far from being firm, is continually wavering. But the human mind, when blinded and darkened, is very far from being able to rise to a proper knowledge of the divine will, nor can the heart, fluctuating with perpetual doubt, rest secure in such knowledge. Hence, in order that the word of God may gain full credit, the mind must be enlightened and the heart confirmed from some other quarter. We shall now have a full definition of faith, if we say that it is a firm and sure knowledge of the divine favor toward us, founded on the truth of a free promise in Christ, and revealed to our minds and sealed on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Section 8 but before I proceed farther, it will be necessary to make some preliminary observations for the purpose of removing difficulties which might otherwise obstruct the reader. And first, I must refute the nugatory distinction of the schoolmen as to formed and unformed faith. For they imagine that persons who have no fear of God and no sense of piety may believe all that is necessary to be known for salvation, as if the Holy Spirit were not the witness of our adoption by enlightening our hearts unto faith. Still, however, though the whole scripture is against them, they dogmatically give the name of faith to a persuasion devoid of the fear of God. It is unnecessary to go farther in refuting their definition than simply to state the nature of faith as declared in the word of God. From this it will clearly appear how unskillfully and absurdly they babble, rather than discourse on this subject. I have already done this in part, and will afterwards add the remainder in its proper place. At present, I say that nothing can be imagined more absurd than their fiction. They insist that faith is an assent with which any despiser of God may receive what is delivered by Scripture. 
But we must first see whether anyone can by his own strength acquire faith, or whether the Holy Spirit, by means of it, becomes the witness of adoption. Hence it is childish trifling in them to inquire whether the faith formed by the supervening quality of love be the same or a different and new faith. By talking in this style they show plainly that they have never thought of the special gift of the Spirit, since one of the first elements of faith is reconciliation implied in man's drawing near to God. Did they duly ponder the saying of Paul, quote, With the heart man believeth unto righteousness, unquote, Romans 10, verse 10, they would cease to dream of that frigid quality. There is one consideration which ought at once to put an end to the debate, viz. that assent itself, as I have already observed, and will afterwards more fully illustrate, is more a matter of the heart than the head, of the affection than the intellect. For this reason it is termed, quote, the obedience of faith, unquote, Romans 1, verse 5, which the Lord prefers to all other service, and justly, since nothing is more precious to him than his truth, which, as John Baptist declares, is in a manner signed and sealed by believers, John 3, verse 33. As there can be no doubt on the matter, we in one word conclude that they talk absurdly when they maintain that faith is formed by the addition of pious affection as an accessory to assent, since assent itself, such at least as the scripture describes, consists in pious affection. But we are furnished with a still clearer argument, since faith embraces Christ as he is offered by the Father, and he is offered not only for justification, for forgiveness of sins and peace, but also for sanctification as the fountain of living waters, it is certain that no man will ever know him aright, without at the same time receiving the sanctification of the Spirit. Or, to express the matter more plainly, faith consists in the knowledge of Christ. Christ cannot be known without the sanctification of his Spirit. Therefore, faith cannot possibly be disjoined from pious affection. Section 9. In their attempt to mar faith by divesting it of love, they are wont to insist on the words of Paul, quote, Though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing, unquote. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2. But they do not consider what the faith is of which the apostle there speaks. Having in the previous chapter discoursed of the various gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10, including diversity of tongues, miracles, and prophecy, and exhorted the Corinthians to follow the better gifts, in other words, those from which the whole body of the church would derive greater benefit, he adds, quote, Yet show I unto you a more excellent way, unquote. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 30. All other gifts, how excellent soever they may be in themselves, are of no value unless they are subservient to charity. They were given for the edification of the church, and fail of their purpose if not so applied. To prove this, he adopts a division, repeating the same gifts, which he had mentioned before, but under different names. Miracles and faith are used to denote the same thing, viz. the power of working miracles. Seeing then that this miraculous power or faith is the particular gift of God, which a wicked man may possess and abuse as the gift of tongues, prophecy, or other gifts, it is not strange that he separates it from charity. Their whole error lies in this, that while the term faith has a variety of meanings, overlooking this variety, they argue as if its meaning were invariably one and the same. The passage of James, by which they endeavor to defend their error, will be elsewhere discussed. See below in chapter 17, section 11. Although in discoursing of faith we admit that it has a variety of forms, yet when our object is to show what knowledge of God the wicked possess, we hold and maintain in accordance with Scripture that the pious only have faith. 
Multitudes undoubtedly believe that God is and admit the truth of the gospel history and the other parts of scripture in the same way in which they believe the records of past events are events which they have actually witnessed. There are some who go even farther. They regard the word of God as an infallible oracle. They do not altogether disregard its precepts, but are moved to some degree by its threatenings and promises. To such the testimony of faith is attributed, but by catechesis, because they do not with open impiety impugn, reject, or contemn the word of God, but rather exhibit some semblance of obedience. Section 10. But as this shadow or image of faith is of no moment, so it is unworthy of the name. How far it differs from true faith will shortly be explained at length. Here, however, we may just indicate it in passing. Simon Magus is said to have believed, though he soon after gave proof of his unbelief. Acts 8, verses 13 through 18. In regard to the faith attributed to him, we do not understand with some that he merely pretended a belief which had no existence in his heart. We rather think that, overcome by the majesty of the gospel, he yielded some kind of assent, and so far acknowledged Christ to be the author of life and salvation as willingly to assume his name. In like manner, in the Gospel of Luke, those in whom the seed of the word is choked before it brings forth fruit, are in whom, from having no depth of earth, it soon withereth away, are said to believe for a time. Such we doubt not, eagerly receive the word with a kind of relish, and have some feeling of its divine power, so as not only to impose upon men by a false semblance of faith, but even to impose upon themselves. They imagine that the reverence which they give to the word is genuine piety, because they have no idea of any impiety but that which consists in open and avowed contempt. But whatever that assent may be, it by no means penetrates to the heart so as to have a fixed seat there. Although it sometimes seems to have planted its roots, these have no life in them. The human heart has so many recesses for vanity, so many lurking places for falsehood, is so shrouded by fraud and hypocrisy that it often deceives itself. Let those who glory in such semblances of faith know that, in this respect, they are not a whit superior to devils. The one class indeed is inferior to them, inasmuch as they are able without emotion to hear and understand things, the knowledge of which makes devils tremble. James 2 verse 19 the other class equals them in this, that whatever be the impression made upon them, its only result is terror and consternation. Section 11. I am aware it seems unaccountable to some how faith is attributed to the reprobate, seeing that it is declared by Paul to be one of the fruits of election. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 3 and 4, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, and Titus 1. And yet the difficulty is easily solved. For though none are enlightened into faith and truly feel the efficacy of the gospel, with the exception of those who are foreordained to salvation, yet experience shows that the reprobate are sometimes affected in a way so similar to the elect that even in their own judgment there is no difference between them. Hence it is not strange that by the apostle a taste of heavenly gifts and by Christ himself a temporary faith is ascribed to them. Not that they truly perceive the power of spiritual grace and the sure light of faith, but the Lord, the better to convict them and leave them without excuse, instills into their minds such a sense of his goodness as can be felt without the spirit of adoption. Should it be objected that believers have no stronger testimony to assure them of their adoption, I answer that though there is a great resemblance and affinity between the elect of God and those who are impressed for a time with a fading faith, Yet the elect alone have that full assurance which is extolled by Paul, and by which they are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. 
Therefore, as God regenerates the elect only forever by incorruptible seed, as the seed of life, once sown in their hearts, never perishes, so he effectually seals in them the grace of his adoption, that it may be sure and steadfast. But in this there is nothing to prevent an inferior operation of the Spirit from taking its course in the reprobate. Meanwhile, believers are taught to examine themselves carefully and humbly, lest carnal security creep in and take the place of assurance of faith. We may add that the reprobate never have any other than a confused sense of grace, laying hold of the shadow rather than the substance, because the Spirit properly seals the forgiveness of sins in the elect only, applying it by special faith to their use. Still, it is correctly said that the reprobate believe God to be propitious to them, inasmuch as they accept the gift of reconciliation, though confusedly and without due discernment. Not that they are partakers of the same faith or regeneration with the children of God, but because under a covering of hypocrisy they seem to have a principle of faith in common with them. Nor do I even deny that God illumines their minds to this extent, that they recognize His grace. But that conviction he distinguishes from the peculiar testimony which he gives to his elect in this respect, that the reprobate never obtained the full result or to fruition. When he shows himself propitious to them, it is not as if he had truly rescued them from death and taken them under his protection. He only gives them a manifestation of his present mercy. In the elect alone he implants the living root of faith, so that they persevere even to the end. Thus we dispose of the objection that if God truly displays his grace, it must endure forever. There is nothing inconsistent in this with the fact of his enlightening some with a present sense of grace, which afterwards proves evanescent. Section 12. Although faith is a knowledge of the divine favor towards us, and a full persuasion of its truth, it is not strange that the sense of divine love, which though akin to faith differs much from it, vanishes in those who are temporarily impressed. The will of God is, I confess, immutable, and his truth is always consistent with itself. But I deny that the reprobate ever advanced so far as to penetrate to that secret revelation which Scripture reserves for the elect only. I therefore deny that they either understand his will considered as immutable, or steadily embrace his truth inasmuch as they rest satisfied with an evanescent impression. Just as a tree not planted deep enough may take root, but will in process of time wither away, though it may for several years not only put forth leaves and flowers, but produce fruit. In short, as by the revolt of the first man, the image of God could be effaced from his mind and soul, so there is nothing strange in his shedding some rays of grace on the reprobate, and afterwards allowing these to be extinguished. There is nothing to prevent his giving some a slight knowledge of his gospel, and imbuing others thoroughly. Meanwhile, we must remember that however feeble and slender the faith of the elect may be, yet as the Spirit of God is to them a sure, earnest, and seal of their adoption, the impression once engraven can never be effaced from their hearts, whereas the light which glimmers in the reprobate is afterwards quenched. Nor can it be said that the Spirit therefore deceives, because it does not quicken the seed which lies in their hearts, so as to make it ever remain incorruptible as in the elect. I go farther seeing it is evident from the doctrine of Scripture and from daily experience that the reprobate are occasionally impressed with a sense of divine grace, some desire of mutual love must necessarily be excited in their hearts. Thus for a time a pious affection prevailed in Saul, disposing him to love God. Knowing that he was treated with paternal kindness, he was in some degree attracted by it. But as the reprobate have no rooted conviction of the paternal love of God, so they do not in return yield the love of sons, but are led by a kind of mercenary affection. 
the spirit of love was given to Christ alone for the express purpose of conferring this spirit upon his members, and there can be no doubt that the following words of Paul apply to the elect only, quote, The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us, unquote. Romans 5, verse 5. Namely, the love which begets that confidence in prayer to which I have above adverted. On the other hand, we see that God is mysteriously offended with his children, though he ceases not to love them. He certainly hates them not, but he alarms them with a sense of his anger that he may humble the pride of the flesh, arouse them from lethargy, and urge them to repentance. Hence they at the same instant feel that he is angry with them for their sins, and also propitious to their persons. It is not from fictitious dread that they deprecate his anger, and yet they betake themselves to him with tranquil confidence. It hence appears that the faith of some, though not true faith, is not mere pretense. They are borne along by some sudden impulse of zeal, and erroneously impose upon themselves sloth undoubtedly preventing them from examining their hearts with due care. Such probably was the case of those whom John describes as believing on Christ, but of whom he says, quote, Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man, unquote. John 2, verses 24 and 25. Were it not true that many fall away from the common faith, I call it common, because there is a great resemblance between temporary and living, ever-enduring faith, Christ would not have said to his disciples, quote, If ye continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Unquote. John 8, verses 31 and 32. He is addressing those who had embraced his doctrine, and urging them to progress in the faith, lest by their sluggishness they extinguish the light which they have received. Accordingly, Paul claims faith as the peculiar privilege of the elect, intimating that many, from not being properly rooted, fall away. Titus 1, verse 1. In the same way, in Matthew, our Savior says, quote, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Unquote. Matthew 16, verse 13. Some who are not ashamed to insult God and man are more grossly false. Against this class of men who profane the faith by impious and lying pretense, James inveighs in James 2, verse 14. Nor would Paul require the faith of believers to be unfeigned, 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, were there not many who presumptuously arrogate to themselves what they have not, deceiving others, and sometimes even themselves, with empty show. Hence he compares a good conscience to the ark in which faith is preserved, because many, by falling away, have, in regard to it, made shipwreck. Section 13. It is necessary to attend to the ambiguous meaning of the term, for faith is often equivalent in meaning to sound doctrine, as in the passage which we lately quoted, and in the same epistle where Paul enjoins the deacons to hold, quote, the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience, unquote, in like manner when he denounces the defection of certain from the faith. The meaning again is the same when he says that Timothy had been brought up in the faith, and in like manner when he says that profane babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so called, lead many away from the faith. Such persons he elsewhere calls reprobate as to the faith. On the other hand, when he enjoins Titus, quote, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, unquote. 1 Timothy 3 verse 9, 4 verses 1 and 6, 2 Timothy 2 verse 15, 3 verse 18, and Titus 1, verse 13, and 2, verse 2. 
By soundness he means purity of doctrine, which is easily corrupted and degenerates through the fickleness of men. And indeed, since in Christ, as possessed by faith, are, quote, hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, unquote, Colossians 1, verses 2 and 3, the term faith is justly extended to the whole sum of heavenly doctrine from which it cannot be separated. On the other hand, it is sometimes confined to a particular object, as when Matthew says of those who let down the paralytic through the roof that Jesus saw their faith, Matthew 9, verse 2. And Jesus himself exclaims in regard to the centurion, quote, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel, unquote. Matthew 8, verse 10. Now it is probable that the centurion was thinking only of the cure of his son, by whom his whole soul was engrossed. But because he is satisfied with the simple answer and assurance of Christ, and does not request his bodily presence, this circumstance calls forth the eulogium on his faith. And we have lately shown how Paul uses the term faith for the gift of miracles, a gift possessed by persons who were neither regenerated by the Spirit of God, nor sincerely reverenced him. In another passage, he uses faith for the doctrine by which we are instructed in the faith. For when he says that, quote, that which is in part shall be done away, unquote, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 10, there can be no doubt that reference is made to the ministry of the church, which is necessary in our present imperfect state. In these forms of expression, the analogy is obvious. But when the name of faith is improperly transferred to a false profession or lying assumption, the catechesis ought not to seem harsher than when the fear of God is used for vicious and perverse worship as when it is repeatedly said in sacred history that the foreign nations which had been transported to Samaria and the neighboring districts feared false gods and the God of Israel. In other words, confounded heaven with earth. But we have now been inquiring what the faith is which distinguishes the children of God from unbelievers, the faith by which we invoke God the Father, by which we pass from death unto life, and by which Christ, our eternal salvation and life, dwells in us. Its power and nature have, I trust, been briefly and clearly explained. Section 14. Let us now again go over the parts of the definition separately. I should think that, after a careful examination of them, no doubt will remain. By knowledge we do not mean comprehension, such as that which we have of things falling under human sense. For that knowledge is so much superior that the human mind must far surpass and go beyond itself in order to reach it nor even when it has reached it does it comprehend what it feels, but persuaded of what it comprehends not. It understands more from mere certainty of persuasion than it could discern of any human matter by its own capacity. Hence it is elegantly described by Paul as ability, quote, to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, unquote. Ephesians 3, verses 18 and 19. His object was to intimate that what our mind embraces by faith is every way infinite, that this kind of knowledge far surpasses all understanding. But because the, quote, mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, unquote, is now, quote, made manifest to the saints, unquote, Colossians 1, verse 26, faith is, for good reason, occasionally termed in Scripture, understanding, in Colossians 2, verse 2, and knowledge, as by John, in 1 John 3, verse 2, when he declares that believers know themselves to be the sons of God. And certainly they do know, but rather as confirmed by a belief of the divine veracity than taught by any demonstration of reason. This is also indicated by Paul when he says that, quote, 
Whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Unquote. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 7. Thus showing that what we understand by faith is yet distant from us, and escapes our view. Hence we conclude that the knowledge of faith consists more of certainty than discernment. Section 15. We add that it is sure and firm, the better to express strength and constancy of persuasion. For as faith is not contented with a dubious and fickle opinion, so neither is it contented with an obscure and ill-defined conception. The certainty which it requires must be full and decisive, as is usual in regard to matters ascertained and proved. So deeply rooted in our hearts is unbelief, so prone are we to it, that while all confess with the lips that God is faithful, no man ever believes it without an arduous struggle. Especially when brought to the test, we by our wavering betray the vice which lurked within. Nor is it without cause that the Holy Spirit bears such distinguished testimony to the authority of God, in order that it may cure the disease of which I have spoken, and induce us to give full credit to the divine promises. Quote, the words of the Lord, unquote, says David, Psalm 12, verse 6, quote, are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, unquote. Quote, the word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those that trust in him, unquote. Psalm 18, verse 30. And Solomon declares the same thing almost in the same words, quote, every word of God is pure, unquote. Proverbs 30, verse 5. But further quotation is superfluous, as the 119th Psalm is almost wholly occupied with this subject. Certainly, whenever God thus recommends his word, he indirectly rebukes our unbelief, the purport of all that is said being to eradicate perverse doubt from our hearts. There are very many also who form such an idea of the divine mercy, as yields them very little comfort, for they are harassed by miserable anxiety while they doubt whether God will be merciful to them. They think, indeed, that they are most fully persuaded of the divine mercy, but they confine it within two narrow limits. The idea they entertain is that this mercy is great and abundant, is shed upon many, is offered and ready to be bestowed upon all, but that it is uncertain whether it will reach to them individually, or rather whether they can reach to it. Thus their knowledge stopping short leaves them only midway, not so much confirming and tranquilizing the mind as harassing it with doubt and disquietude. Very different is that feeling of full assurance. Greek word, pi, lambda, eta, zeta, omicron, phi, omicron, zeta, iota, alpha. Plesophosia, which the scriptures uniformly attribute to faith, an assurance which leaves no doubt that the goodness of God is clearly offered to us. This assurance we cannot have without truly perceiving its sweetness and experiencing it in ourselves. Hence from faith the apostle deduces confidence, and from confidence boldness. His words are, quote, in whom, Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him, unquote. Ephesians 3, verse 12. Thus, undoubtedly showing that our faith is not true, unless it enables us to appear calmly in the presence of God. Such boldness springs only from confidence in the divine favor and salvation. So true is this that the term faith is often used as equivalent to confidence. Section 16. The principal hinge on which faith turns is this. We must not suppose that any promises of mercy which the Lord offers are only true out of us and not at all in us. We should rather make them ours by inwardly embracing them. In this way only is engendered that confidence which he elsewhere terms peace. Romans 5 verse 1. Though perhaps he rather means to make peace follow from it. 
This is the security which quiets and calms the conscience in the view of the judgment of God, and without which it is necessarily vexed and almost torn with tumultuous dread, unless when it happens to slumber for a moment, forgetful both of God and of itself. And verily it is but for a moment. It never long enjoys that miserable obliviousness for the memory of the divine judgment, ever and anon recurring, stings it to the quick. In one word, he only is a true believer who, firmly persuaded that God is reconciled, and is a kind father to him, hopes everything from his kindness, who, trusting to the promises of the divine favor, with undoubting confidence, anticipates salvation. As the Apostle shows in these words, quote, We are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Unquote. Hebrews 3, verse 14. He thus holds that none hope well in the Lord save those who confidently glory in being the heirs of the heavenly kingdom. No man, I say, is a believer, but he who, trusting to the security of his salvation, confidently triumphs over the devil and death, as we are taught by the noble exclamation of Paul, quote, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Unquote. Romans 8, verse 38. In like manner, the same apostle does not consider that the eyes of our understanding are enlightened unless we know what is the hope of the eternal inheritance to which we are called. Ephesians 1, verse 18. Thus he uniformly intimates throughout his writings that the goodness of God is not properly comprehended when security does not follow as its fruit. Section 17. But it will be said that this differs widely from the experience of believers, who, in recognizing the grace of God toward them, not only feel disquietude, this often happens, but sometimes tremble, overcome with fear, so violent are the temptations which assail their minds. This scarcely seems consistent with certainty of faith. It is necessary to solve this difficulty in order to maintain the doctrine above laid down. When we say that faith must be certain and secure, we certainly speak not of an assurance which is never affected by doubt, nor a security which anxiety never assails. We rather maintain that believers have a perpetual struggle with their own distrust, and are thus far from thinking that their consciences possess a placid quiet uninterrupted by perturbation. On the other hand, whatever be the mode in which they are assailed, we deny that they fall off and abandon that sure confidence which they have formed in the mercy of God. Scripture does not set before us a brighter or more memorable example of faith than in David, especially if regard be had to the constant tenor of his life. And yet how far his mind was from being always at peace is declared by innumerable complaints, of which it will be sufficient to select a few. When he rebukes the turbulent movements of his soul, what else is it but a censure of his unbelief? Quote, why art thou cast down, my soul, and why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God. Unquote. Psalm 42, verse 6. His alarm was undoubtedly a manifest sign of distrust, as if he thought that the Lord had forsaken him. In another passage we have a fuller confession. Quote, I said in my haste, I am cut off from before thine eyes. Unquote. Psalm 31, verse 22. In another passage, in anxious and wretched perplexity, he debates with himself, nay, raises a question as to the nature of God. Quote, Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Unquote. Psalm 77, verse 9. 
What follows is still harsher. Quote, I said this is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. Unquote. As if desperate, he adjudges himself to destruction. He not only confesses that he is agitated by doubt, but, as if he had fallen in the contest, leaves himself nothing in reserve, God having deserted him and made the hand which was wont to help him the instrument of his destruction. Wherefore, after having been tossed among tumultuous waves, it is not without reason he exhorts his soul to return to her quiet rest. Psalm 116, verse 7. And yet, what is strange, amid those commotions, faith sustains the believer's heart, and truly acts the part of the palm tree which supports any weights laid upon it, and rises above them. Thus David, when he seemed to be overwhelmed, ceased not by urging himself forward to ascend to God. But he who, anxiously contending with his own infirmity, has recourse to faith, is already in a great measure victorious. This we may infer from the following passage, and others similar to it. Quote, Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thy heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Unquote. Psalm 27, verse 14. He accuses himself of timidity, and repeating the same thing twice, confesses that he is ever and anon exposed to agitation. Still, he is not only dissatisfied with himself for so feeling, but earnestly labors to correct it. Were we to take a nearer view of his case and to compare it with that of Ahaz, we should find a great difference between them. Isaiah is sent to relieve the anxiety of an impious and hypocritical king, and addresses him in these terms, quote, Take heed and be quiet. Fear not, unquote, etc. Isaiah 7, verse 4. How did Ahaz act? As has already been said, his heart was shaken as a tree is shaken by the wind. Though he heard the promise, he ceased not to tremble. This, therefore, is the proper hire and punishment of unbelief, so to tremble as in the day of trial to turn away from God, who gives access to himself only by faith. On the other hand, believers, though weighed down and almost overwhelmed with the burden of temptation, constantly rise up, though not without toil and difficulty. Hence, feeling conscious of their own weakness, they pray with the prophet, quote, Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, unquote. Psalm 119, verse 43. By these words we are taught that they at times become dumb, as if their faith were overthrown, and yet that they do not withdraw or turn their backs, but persevere in the contest, and by prayer stimulate their sluggishness, so as not to fall into stupor by giving way to it. Section 18. To make this intelligible, we must return to the distinction between flesh and spirit, to which we have already adverted, and which here becomes most apparent. The believer finds within himself two principles, the one filling him with delight in recognizing the divine goodness, the other filling him with bitterness under a sense of his fallen state, the one leading him to recline on the promise of the gospel, the other alarming him by the conviction of his iniquity, the one making him exult with the anticipation of life, the other making him tremble with the fear of death. This diversity is owing to the imperfection of faith, since we are never so well in the course of the present life as to be entirely cured of the disease of distrust, and completely replenished and engrossed by faith. Hence those conflicts, the distrust cleaving to the remains of the flesh, rising up to assail the faith, existing in our hearts. But if in the believer's mind certainty is mingled with doubt, must we not always be carried back to the conclusion that faith consists not of a sure and clear, but only of an obscure and confused understanding of the divine will in regard to us? By no means. Though we are distracted by various thoughts, it does not follow that we are immediately divested of faith. 
Though we are agitated and carried to and fro by distrust, we are not immediately plunged into the abyss. Though we are shaken, we are not therefore driven from our place. The invariable issue of the contest is that faith in the long run surmounts the difficulties by which it was beset and seemed to be endangered. Section 19. The whole then comes to this. As soon as the minutest part of faith is instilled into our minds, we begin to behold the face of God placid, serene, and propitious, far off indeed, but still so distinctly as to assure us that there is no delusion in it. In proportion to the progress we afterwards make, and the progress ought to be uninterrupted, we obtain a nearer and surer view, the very continuance making it more familiar to us. Thus we see that a mind illumined with the knowledge of God is at first involved in much ignorance, ignorance, however, which is gradually removed. Still this partial ignorance or obscure discernment does not prevent that clear knowledge of the divine favor which holds the first and principal part in faith. For as one shut up in a prison, where from a narrow opening he receives the rays of the sun indirectly, and in a manner divided, though deprived of a full view of the sun, has no doubt of the source from which the light comes, and is benefited by it. So believers, while bound with the fetters of an earthly body, though surrounded on all sides with much obscurity, are so far illumined by any slender light which beams upon them and displays the divine mercy as to feel secure. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Still Waters Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. 
And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.